0: Well, I'm Chris Clifford and uh, I've been a student here for about 10 years, um, doing a lot of retreats during that time. And I used to be a software engineer, but I think I've given that up and I'm not sure what else I'm doing. So I'm kind of in limbo. So talk about doubt. (laughs) Um, So this is our fifth and final, I'm sure you're all relieved, week on the topic of the hindrances. Um, The five hindrances are these states of mind that make it difficult to develop concentration and to see clearly enough to experience the insight that leads to the end of suffering. So one more time, we could probably all sing this together if we've been here, but let's not. It's sense, desire, aversion, sloth and torpor, restlessness, which is also known as worry and remorse, and skeptical doubt. So, of course, these hindrances, despite the word, are not things, extraneous things that happen to our practice, but really learning to recognize them and work with them skillfully is really the heart of our practice for a long, long, long time. Um, We train ourselves to recognize these states and to look for one of them as the suspected culprit when we find ourselves suffering. We spend so much time talking about them because when you learn to recognize them and really investigate how they work when a state of dissatisfaction comes up, it's already really the big turning point in the way our minds work because we're turning away from the habit of blaming something external and blaming conditions. And we're starting to get a clue that it really has to do with the way that we relate to what's happening in our own mind. And that's really the only place that we have any chance of controlling it. We can't control external circumstances, but we can work on our relationship to what's happening. So when we sit down to meditate with the best intention of following our breath or being continuously mindful, what happens? Within probably a few seconds, we're suddenly off thinking about something. And then we wake up and we come back to our meditation object and we try again, over and over and over again. So this mysterious force that seemingly took our attention away from our intended practice is probably one of the hindrances. It might be desire or aversion that's arising right in reaction to some sense event that we didn't really notice, some pleasant or unpleasant sensation, or it could be just an overall mood or a kind of energetic imbalance. That kind of, That's what, sort of what restlessness and sloth and torpor tend to be. They can make us especially vulnerable to just spacing out over and over again or to getting lost and hooked by every recurrent worry that comes up. So all this is perfectly normal, and the whole effort in practicing is just about persevering and starting over, over and over again. So this is the way that doubt can in some ways be the most hindering of the hindrances because it often arises as a second-level reaction or as a kind of diversion right at the point where we might otherwise come back and try again. It's a voice that tells us, oh, don't try again. It's the give up, you know, just give up. This isn't working. I can't do this. Or it can even keep us from starting to practice in the first place. So what is doubt? Let's look a little more closely at that. Um, As soon as we start talking about doubt, it brings to mind its opposite. Words like faith or belief or certainty. And these words can often trigger some kind of resistance or reaction in, in us, since especially if we know them mainly in their use in Western religion and philosophy. A lot of us may have turned to Buddhism because we wanted a form of spiritual practice that didn't seem to be about having faith or having faith in a particular set of beliefs. After all, the Buddha's dying words were, Be a lamp unto yourself. So there's a well-known salute, uh, sutta to the Kalamas, These are people in this town that they've been visited by teachers from many sects. And all these teachers, it says, explain and elucidate their own doctrines, but they disparage, debunk, revile, and vilify the doctrines of others. So they ask the Buddha how they can tell what's true. And he says, do not go by oral tradition, by lineage of teaching, by hearsay, by a collection of scriptures, by logical reasoning by inferential reasoning, by reflection on reasons, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of a speaker, or because you think this person is our teacher. <clears throat> so this kind of blind faith in scripture or authority is certainly not what's called for in this practice. But it's interesting to say that see that neither are the various modes of abstract logical reasoning or taking something up just because it agrees with your own preconceived notions of how things ought to be. So how do we know what's true? And the Buddha says, of course, when you know for yourselves, these things are unwholesome, these things are blamable, these things are censured by the wise, these things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. And the reverse, when you know for yourselves these things are wholesome and so forth and undertaken and practiced lead to welfare and happiness, then you should engage in them. It's interesting to say that see that this is not just saying do your own thing. It's still there's still room for advice from the wise. We don't want to throw out twenty five hundred years of wisdom in how to do this. And we we wouldn't know where to start. We don't have enough time in our lives to really try more than, you know, one or two paths or really one path all the way through. So we need to listen to the advice of the wise, but then we need to put it into practice for ourselves. There are two similes in the suttas for doubt. This series that we've been following every week, the one about the pot of water. When it's uh, doubt, it's turbid, stirred up and muddy and put into a dark place. So you really can't see. A man with normal faculty of sight could not properly recognize and see the image of his own face. The other one is of a man traveling through a desert Aware that travelers may be plundered or killed by robbers, he will go a few steps and then out of fear he will stop and continue in such a manner all the way or he may even turn back, stopping more frequently than walking. Only with toil and difficulty will he reach a place of safety or he may not reach it at all. So these similes capture the experience that doubt is blinding and that it's the experience of being lost and not able to see which way to go that also that it's dry and unnourishing and that it's often rooted in fear and anxiety and most importantly that it stops us from practicing at all the buddha says that the main factor that gives rise to doubt is unwise attention and the main factor that overcomes doubt is wise attention so what is wise attention Basically, it means looking at everything that we do with an eye to discerning whether it's leading to more suffering or less suffering. And this means that we need to learn to recognize right in the moment when we're suffering and when we aren't. And what conditions contributed, not, not conditions from our childhood, you know, that whole, the whole story about my life, but right now in the moment, you know, I was fine and now I'm suffering. What condition arose that made me start to experience that feeling of contraction or struggle? And what conditions contribute to turning that around, to the ability to accept and investigate and be open to our experience? The word wise attention is the usual translation of a Pali phrase, yoniso manasikara, that literally means a womb-like movement of the mind. Womb-like so to me, this is very suggestive. It suggests images of the way that we need to attend to things, a sort of all-enveloping and surrounding attention. Or it could mean something like needing to be there right at the beginning of things, right as things are born, so that the attention is there to catch things just as they happen, just as they first come into being. Or also it might be a sense of nurturing, that kind of non-judgmental, meta-filled quality of attention that we need to bring to things. So wise attention is really basic. The commentaries also list some other antidotes for doubt. Knowledge of the Buddhist scriptures and asking questions about them. Familiarity with the principles of moral conduct. A firm conviction in the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. That's a little circular if we, you know, that's kind of a definition of non-doubt. But if you have that, then, you know, doubt doesn't arise. Uh, Noble friendship and suitable conversation. So in my experience, all these antidotes need to be applied in conjunction with wise attention because there are skillful and unskillful ways to study and ways to work with teachers and ways to share the Dharma with our friends. Um, I find that some form of study, at least listening to the instructions from experienced teachers, is really essential in practice. Because the kind of bare attention that's required to begin to find freedom from suffering is so counterintuitive to our usual habits that we can really use all the reinforcement we can get to try to understand what that is. If we're even just told that the key is attention, go pay attention, well, gosh, you know, we can't just pay attention to everything. And really the path is not to pay attention to everything. There are some specific guidelines for what's useful. It calls our attention to those aspects of experience that we would otherwise miss. We can learn this from studying, that is, or from listening to talks. For example, the way emotions play out in the body and the the whole idea of tuning into our bodies instead of thinking about our stories and wallowing in our emotions. The notion that there's this feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, that's so key to, to freedom, is really keying in on that. And it's so subtle that we have to look for a long time before we can really begin to see it. Um, Greed and aversion arise so quickly from that feeling tone, and yet that's really the leverage point there, is is noticing that feeling tone without moving into the grasping and pushing away. We can learn um, about the subtlety of that moment of intention before we act. That's really the point where we have a chance to get in there and apply whatever wisdom we have to what we do. And it's also the link between the mental and physical. And it lets us link up everything that's going on in our minds and bodies in a chain of conditioned arising, which is the basic teaching of the Buddha about how things are. So it can also be really helpful studying to give us a big picture of the lawful nature of this awakening process. As I was saying earlier, knowing where the leverage points are, where can we apply effort and attention to be skillful? Where is it useful to apply effort and where do we need to just trust in the process? It can be unskillful to apply effort to what's really a natural result. If you set up the right conditions, this result applies. This result naturally arises. So, for example, we can't directly make concentration and insights arise. I wish we could. But we can apply effort to behaving morally and to returning our attention over and over again to the present moment and then this sets off a a chain reaction that eventually leads all the way to liberation because knowing that your actions are in line with your deepest moral principles it brings a greater peace of mind and it allows us to really stand to be mindful if we're doing things that we know are against our principles we're not very motivated to look carefully at what's going on and as we become more and more skillful at mindfulness and wise attention the conditions (coughs) that don't give rise to these hindrances begin to predominate and happiness is the natural result. When this happiness of being temporarily free from the hindrances arises, then the mind becomes calm and concentration naturally follows that. And in the stillness of a concentrated mind, we can see more and more deeply into the impermanent and unsatisfying nature of the things that we usually cling to. And then eventually, lots and lots of practice. The mind sees the hopelessness of clinging to these insubstantial and unsatisfying things and it just naturally lets go of them. And in a mind that isn't preoccupied with its own security and pleasure, genuinely selfless love and compassion can flower. So this is not just a linear process. It's a spiral and it takes a long time and it goes all around and around. And, you know, I don't know anybody whose practice just goes lockstep like that. But that's... It's nice to have a vision of how the whole thing unfolds. And it can give us confidence that it really is onward leading. So there's a confusing array of teachings in the West these days, even within Buddhism. We can find ourselves, like the Kalamas, getting quite hung up, wondering things like, are bodhisattvas better than Arhats, or whose definition of nibbana is right, how many levels of enlightenment are there, you know, is it no self or true self and visualizations and do I need a guru, do I need a mantra, you know? And what is zogchen anyway? So, you know, I spent a lot of time on all this. <laughs> I don't know about you. But um, it's really important to sort out what are the interpretations of experiences that are really nonverbal, You know, they're beyond description. But everybody tries, and so it's given rise to all these analogies and metaphors and so forth. And then beyond that, there's really um, varying skillful means that are the aids to developing. The fundamentals are concentration and mindfulness and compassion. And there are lots of skillful means to work on those three areas. And most of the teachings and most of the practices boil down to this. Um... I love reading all the different traditions myself, even other religions, uh, because once I'm grounded in this basic understanding, I feel that they're all fingers pointing to at least similar moons. And it actually helps my faith in the possibility of awakening to see that something like this seems to be a common human experience. I find that some of the more poetic traditions, like the Sufis or some of the Christian poets, speak to my heart in a way that complements the basic understanding of how to train the mind that I take from Buddhism. But when it comes to picking a practice, we have to use our best intuition about what's the right practice for us and then really give it a long and steady try. So pick something that appeals to you, you know, I guess you're all here, so this is probably it, you know, and then stick with it for a good long time. Um, For me, simple is the key to what I can actually practice. So just returning over and over to the breath or to the wide open space of the mind and watching everything come and go is a real touchstone for me, although I enjoy reading the other things, and I think, oh, I, you know, deity practice, that might be fun. But when I actually start to do it, I, you know, I'm not going to do that seriously. And so I just keep coming back home to the simplicity of this practice over and over again. Although everybody's different. So, you know, if you hear about something that you think, you know, is it for you, could be it for you. So um, it's a personal choice, really, what practice to do. So in addition to being confused by the array of teaching, it's also possible to overstudy. Um, you can definitely learn too much about what experiences might happen to you. Um, you can go off and read secondhand accounts of all these different insights and all these different concentration experiences. And, you know, people see light and people have this and that happening. And, you know, different things happen to everybody or, you know, you, you, I'm, I'm convinced you can get enlightened with nothing happening to you, other than that you quit suffering, you know, and it's not very exciting, but it's great. I, I imagine. <laughs> so, anyway. um, so this kind of leads into the topic of, of spiritual materialism, which to, in my mind is related to doubt, because it's, it's the same effort, although it's kind of greed also, but it's, it's the same energy of trying to figure things out. And trying to, it really comes from a fear of the unknown. And in response to a fear of the unknown, we sure like to have a theory of what's going to happen. And so we think and think and think about it, and it kind of goes back and forth between doubt and inspiration and grasping and imagining what might happen when we're you know, enlightened. And it's all, in my mind, awfully interconnected. There's a little poem I like here by uh, the Portuguese poet Fernando Pesal. I can find it. He says, to see the fields and the river, it isn't enough to open the window. To see the trees and the flowers, it isn't enough not to be blind. It is also necessary to have no philosophy. With philosophy there are not trees, just ideas. There is only each one of us like a cave. There is only a shut window and the whole world outside. And a dream of what could be seen if the window were opened which is never what is seen when the window is opened. So I have a long and sort of tortured history to the concept of enlightenment. when I first started practicing, I was convinced there was no such thing. I didn't even want to hear about it. I was a, a confirmed gradualist, like, well maybe you get a little happier, you know, and, and when people were talking about these degrees of enlightenment and so forth, I, I really used to hold my ears because I had a deep intuition that it was not helpful for me to get into this spiritual materialism and to start focusing too much on the goal. And those were good years. That was wise. <laughs> but then, um, then I went reading these. It's crazy, but I read some book about um, chaos theory and the tipping point and all this, and I suddenly got convinced oh, yes, yes, some, there could be some instantaneous moment in which, you know, boom, all your problems are solved. And, you know, I'd meet people who claim such things happen to them, although, you know, they didn't seem all that perfect. And so, I, you know, I, anyway, I suddenly swung over to the other direction and I started, you know, studying up, you know, what happens in this stage and that stage and, you know, asking everybody about it. and. It was just a whole lot of suffering, and um, I hope I've let go of that, because, you know, I'm I, I'm really, I'm back to seeing that I have no clue. And whatever it is, it's in the moment, you know. As, as soon as you're thinking about it, you're lost. So there's no point in thinking about it, A. Who knows what it is, B. I mean, this, Joseph Goldstein has this wonderful book called One Dharma, where he tries to sort out all these teachings. He doesn't know what it is, you know, so I don't know what it is. <laughs> and it's just... Uh, it's just silly to think about it. And so just keep coming back to the moment. And, you know, it's, it's just in, in the moment, whatever it is. So that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> um, yeah, one of these other factors is, is confidence in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. And for me, really, what this means is wh- where the confidence from the very beginning can come in this is that it's, it's a human being who discovered this. And it's a natural process. And through 2,500 years, there have been many, many other people who have followed that process and tested it and confirmed it. And so, you know, we're human beings. And that's, that's where the inspiration in the beginning is for me, in, in the, the confidence in the Triple Gem. Inspiration from teachers has been absolutely essential for me uh, in conveying what the embodied essence of being awake is really like. So, being you know near at least in a stadium to the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Khan or people like that, and then being you know we're quite close to people like Gil, who 's available and all the teachers at spirit rock it 's just been so inspiring to me. Um, I even had an experience last year where I, I went to sit with in Massachusetts, not Burma, but I went to sit with Upandita, the uh, Burmese Sayadaw, and I had no reason to think I would like him because I had heard nothing but scary stories about him but I went and, and I was sitting there the first night and waiting for him to come in the room. And I was kind of, I was really worried about this retreat because I thought, oh, it's going to be hard, you know. And and he walked into the room and just this wave of metta. And, he you know, he's this very stern-looking old monk and nothing about the way he looked or anything he said for the entire retreat had any, you know, effect. I, I mean, didn't convince me anything other than what I thought. But this wave of metta just hit me and I just started crying with, with just... There was something just absolutely indescribable but completely palpable about his presence. Um, As well as being inspired by teachers, however, there's also some traps there that can lead us into doubt. Um, We can start idealizing teachers and we can get hung up on sort of performing for the teachers. You know, this is a problem I have on retreats constantly, I get all hung up on the interviews and what am I going to say to the teachers and it just ruins my mindfulness trying to rehearse and prepare for what I'm going to say. Um, And then sometimes we can be disappointed when they turn out to be only human. We haven't had any big scandals in this tradition that I know of, but, you know, they're human. And and if you have idealized them, then, you know, they may be grumpy someday and, and it could put you off. But really, the thing about teachers is that they've touched something in us, you know. So even a teacher who, you know, somebody like... Chogyam Trungpa, who's you know a famous alcoholic with all kinds of weird problems, you know, he touched so many people and he he woke up something in people. So, you know, I think that's really what we have to appreciate in a teacher. Anybody who shows you something about what you value and what you idealize is is really a great teacher for you. There's also the aspect of uh, a really good teacher will will give you a hard time sometimes and they'll try to show you where your ego is and where you're uh, not seeing very clearly. And it can be a real tendency to want to shoot the messenger and to feel like, you know, this guy doesn't understand me because he's, you know, showing me where I'm stuck. So uh, that's another way that doubt can arise in relation to teachers. So the hardest part of all for most of us, I think, is self-doubt. No matter how human the Buddha was, or no matter how human our teachers were, it's so easy to believe that somehow that's them, and I'm the exception to the Dharma. And, you know, this is not going to work for me. My problems are so great, and so my mind is so twisted that this just isn't going to work for me. I I, I have a sort of insatiable appetite for Western style Dharma talks where the teachers talk about how hard it was for them. I just, I love that so much. You know, the, the, the Eastern teachers will tell you just, you know, do it, you know. <laughs> I did it and it worked. <laughs> and, but that doesn't help me, you know. I need to hear that they were once a wretch like me, you know. That's the only thing that works for me in Dharma talks. And um, the self-doubt is just really hard. So it comes around, when I hear myself saying, I can't do this, I've learned, really, that the real problem is not with me, but with some concept that I'm holding on to about what this is. I'm wanting something else to be happening, and I think that I'm supposed to be able to make it so. Um, I can't do what? I can't pay pay attention? Well, yes, you know. (laughs) It's just there's got to be more to it than that somehow, and I can't do that, whatever I imagine that it is. It seems like every retreat, I have a hard relationship with this teaching about mental distress, technique that we teach here of mental noting. For some reason that has driven me crazy for years and I, I just feel like I can't do it. And every teacher I've ever talked to says, fine, don't do it. You know, but can I hear that? No. <laughs> you know, I, I have to struggle with it and, and there comes a time in every retreat when I, I think I've built up so much frustration over trying too hard to make things happen that I take it all out on the idea that if only I could do this noting right. And and I I get into this noting Smith, you know, and I try and I try and I can't do it and I can't do it and and every time I'm just about on the verge of tears, and then something like there's a bird, you know, or there's a somebody drops a rock outside, or there's just some simple thing, and it's so the sweet relief of just tuning into this thing that's happening, it just collapses this whole cloud of I can't do this, I can't do this, like oh, that. Yeah, well, I can do that. <laughs> you know, I can listen to this. And then then, you know, it just all collapses back into simplicity. So it's also really valuable, of course, to have a community of friends to share and talk with. Um, I find that friends help me with my doubting mind from both sides. They share how difficult it can be. And I see that it's not just me who finds it hard, but that it's the nature of uh, having a human mind. And also I'm really inspired by seeing people that I've known here in the center and through practice and people I meet on retreat every year. Over several years, you know, gradually I just see people becoming softer and more accepting and more at ease and happier, basically. And it's just it's just such a pleasure to see it reflected in other people. And, you know, sometimes people tell me, yeah, you used to be really wound up, you know. And like, yeah, <laughs> probably still am. But, you know, it's, not, it's really good to have that community. Um, but on the other hand... One of the habits, in my experience, that's most conducive to self-doubt is the habit of comparing mind. Um, I just, you know, I think there's this teaching of of mana, which means, uh, I don't know what, I'm sorry, I forgot, (laughs) comparing, but anyway, uh, conceit is what it means. So if you think you're better than someone, or if you think you're worse than someone, or if you think you're equal, You know, in any way, you're conceiving something about yourself and something about them. And you're taking these two fictitious entities and this whole complex thing of the path and the whole unfolding of the Dharma and opening of our minds and bodies and hearts. And and you're saying, we should be, you know, how come that person's smiling and I wasn't? You know, how come, how come that person, you know, had these little chills and I didn't? How come this person, you know, I can do this. I can do this. I can sit there on retreat and look around at everybody else is being quiet. Everybody else is smiling. Everybody else is bowing, looking sincere. And I'm just bowing, you know, thinking, oh, no, another whole day of this. <laughs> and, you know, and then at the end, we all get together and talk and we're all, oh, it was so horrible. Oh, did you see that? Oh, did you see that? And, you know, I know I just made it all up. And the thing is that each of us, you know, each of us has our own path. And we, it's a process of unwinding how we're wound up. And we're each wound up different, and we have to unwind the way we're wound. And so, you know, it's just the way it is. And we're not all equal, you know. Some people get it faster than other people, and that's the way it is. And it's just part of what we have to accept. Um, So the most common kind of experience that leads to doubt, both self-doubt and doubt about the path, is running up against the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha. I think that I have yet to experience doubt in reaction to something pleasant. My favorite technique when I'm really caught up in doubt is to ask myself, what's going on here that's unpleasant? Would I be taking this doubt track seriously if I felt great? I reflect back on the last time that I felt good and I see that all the reasons all the reasons why I'm telling myself I can't do this were still true then, you know, and they're still true now and it's it really becomes funny, especially on retreat when you this can be a 10 minute cycle, you know, between great faith and great doubt and great faith and great doubt and it's just hilarious after a while to see the absolutely guaranteed connection between some unpleasant sensation and believing that the dharma is not going to work for me. So, you know, some things that that happen are That are little peaks of dukkha is seeing the same thing over and over again and getting really fed up. When is this going to go away? But actually, in that moment, it's no longer the same old thing. It's moved on to aversion and doubt and judgment. So when when we find ourselves thinking that the same old thing is happening, we have to look closer. Because beneath the surface, the same old thing is never happening. Um, You can drop down into it in more detail and you can notice, you know, when it's first started, you can resolve to be there for the first little hint of it and just get interested in exploring how it works. Sometimes in practice, things may seem to get worse. Um, We really begin to see deeper into our defenses and our old holding patterns may begin to release. Um, We may have to learn over and over again that our faith has been a little naive or misplaced or confused with self-improvement schemes or intermixed with magical thinking or projecting our childhood needs onto our teachers, our spiritual communities. I think I've kind of been going through a phase of this all this year really, Um, seeing a lot of anxiety. Uh, I've been sitting a a lot of long retreats and at the last one I had a kind of an energetic release and there's a lot of weird stuff going on in my body and it's kind of... um, I feel like I need to not do those retreats for a while. And now I'm feeling kind of, oh, I'm seeing how much I really relied on going to that safe, quiet place every year for several months. And I'm, I'm really realizing that um, in a way I've kind of been hiding there, although it's been a very valuable experience and I'm not putting it down. But it seems like a phase that's maybe over and uh, and I need to just be with it and, you know, see what's going to happen next. Um, I really find these these phases like this are very simplifying because when I really get in touch with dukkha, I sort of drop a lot of thinking about it and I really have no choice but to focus in the present moment. And it's really, it feels like this is a a time that's kind of deepening my practice and forcing it to be saturated throughout my life rather than kind of isolated into like a rehab at the end of the year (laughs) after a year of, you know, not being not so careful. So, so far, uh, I've been talking about working with doubt and our relationship to practice as a whole in relationship to our confidence that this path is worth our time and so forth. But actually, um, if we talk about doubt as a hindrance, what it really comes down to is what's going on at the moment. And what's really a hindrance to concentration and insight is indulging in the activity of doubting. It really doesn't matter what you believe or whether your heart is full of faith in the Dharma, but what are you doing in this moment? Are you actually practicing doubting or are you practicing paying attention? At this level, the only antidote really is to recognize it as thinking and to reconnect with something that's happening. Because in a moment of hearing or feeling, feeling your breath, what is there to doubt? There's no room for doubt. There's another little poem uh, from... Portuguese poet I lie down in the grass and forget all I was taught what I was taught never made me any warmer or cooler what I was told exists never changed the shape of a thing what I was made to see never touched my eyes what was pointed out to me was never there only what was there was there So, if we keep falling back into doubt, no matter how much we try, we can look more closely to see what's triggering it. Um, The other four hindrances, often unnoticed, will lead right into doubt. Um, If we're meditating and something unpleasant comes up, we naturally begin to question the value of it and the technique that we're using. And doubt sneaks in masquerading as wisdom. Um, if we're practicing along and suddenly there's this w- nice tingling sensation, suppose that we're committed to practicing mindfulness, this is, and a nice tingling sensation arises. First thing in my mind is, oh, this must be time to switch to concentration practice. You know, isn't there some way to kind of pervade and prolong this sensation? You know, I should I should learn those jhanas. I should go off on a jhana retreat. This mindfulness really isn't working. And I go off on that ta- on that tack. And I've completely missed the fact that there was a pleasant sensation that arose and was, you know, going away. Um, aversion. I'm the thought. As soon as the thought comes in, oh, I've had it with this back pain, I go right into the thinking, blaming the practice. You know, this practice is causing suffering, not ending it. When are we going to get to my real problems? I used to spend so much time worrying about whether to sit on a chair, sit on a cushion, sit on a bench, and all that. And it, it, it you know, I still do. <laughs> but, you know, I can spend so much time fiddling with the equipment. But really, the only times that I've learned anything is when I really just sat down anywhere. It doesn't matter where, anywhere. And get around to working with a version. Um, if we're caught in restlessness, we can be thinking that it would be easier to be mindful of a different object, so we keep switching instructions every minute. Um, I have a habit of going over and over the instructions as if I'm going to figure out a shortcut somehow, as if there's something I really don't understand, that if I just got it, you know, then, then I, could, I wouldn't have to work so hard. I could just kind of plug in that formula and everything would work from then on. So it's helpful to know what your practice intention is for the set for a sitting session. Are you practicing mindfulness or are you practicing concentration? And it's helpful to have a really strong anchor like the breath. And when in doubt, go there. You know, it's really simple. It cuts out a lot of worrying about what to do. When I'm particularly sleepy and sloth and torpor arises, I start thinking, oh, I should be kind to myself, you know. I I think maybe I'm really a Taoist, you know. Non doing, that sounds like the right thing right now. And it, I just go off into kind of a hazy dreaming about nice spiritual, spiritual dreamland. Um, so it's really important to learn to work with these natural energy swings because there's nothing like low energy to make you start blaming yourself and thinking that there's something wrong with the practice. But our energy comes and goes. You know, Sometimes it's high, sometimes it's low, and the practice is just to learn to be with it no matter what's happening. So sometimes doubt manifests as just total confusion, just total confusion. You can't even identify what's happening. So note confusion. This is actually very helpful, although I don't do the noting. It does help sometimes very often. When these very vague mind states come up, like confusion a restlessness and dullness, it's actually really an eye-opener in expanding our understanding of what we can be aware of. Because there can be awareness with these murky states of consciousness. You can actually be quite clear that you were confused, or you can be quite certain that you were in doubt. So tune into that clarity. Because mindfulness is really not about being in any particular state of mind. You don't have to have clarity. You don't have to have any of these things that are nice, but they come and go like anything else. So as soon as we really engage with one of these strategies, like backing out to take in the big picture, or putting it under the microscope and looking at all the details of exactly how it's arising and passing, then we've disidentified with the doubt. So what is non-doubt? There's skillful and unskillful doubting, and there's also skillful and unskillful versions of faith. For both of them, it's really the difference between open and closed and between clinging and non-clinging. Unskillful blind faith keeps us clinging to beliefs and unskillful doubt keeps us clinging to the need to figure everything out. Skillful doubt keeps us investigating the truth for ourselves. And skillful faith is really a quality of a deep trust in ourselves and in the process of opening up on all levels in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds. This faith matures through the whole life of our practice. In the beginning, we we might have what's called bright faith. This is kind of the honeymoon phase of the practice, when you fall in love with the idea of the dharma, and fall in love with the teachers, and start collecting vast quantities of dharma books. And and, uh, it's wonderful. It overcomes this kind of paralyzing doubt, and apathy, and cynicism, and the sense that life isn't going anywhere, and that our suffering has no meaning. And it's really beautiful, but in order to mature, it needs to lead to the willingness to act. So that's a kind of faith. Maybe we don't have the bright faith. Maybe we came right and maybe we're, you know, not so prone to that. We can start with the willingness to act. Just based on, without needing to believe anything, but just based on the kind of evidence that persuades us that this experiment is worth running. We have to act because otherwise we can keep spinning endlessly on reading and thinking about spirituality without really facing up to our direct experience of the moment. Then as we taste deeper and deeper peace of mind, even momentarily, we start to know that there's really nothing special about our suffering, that there's nothing that's uniquely twisted about our minds, that the Dharma won't work. And then we begin to have verified faith. This is a kind of knowing and certainty but not certainty of belief but certainty of experience of like certainty that you know that we can feel this and that we can see that so this kind of faith begins to bring confidence and courage with it it gets us through the hard times that inevitably come up it's like the metaphor is often used of the sun once you've seen it even though it's a cloudy day you know it's back there and you don't you know you know it'll come out again someday it's remembering what we saw with certainty But the fear of the unknown can appear in uh, more subtle ways and we need to, as this kind of spiritual materialism, as the need to impose a pattern on our experience or to cling to the memory of our pleasant meditation states or the idea that we made our insights happen and that we think we ought to know how to do the next one and how to make something happen next. But as we let go even more deeply, faith continues to mature into a deep trust in awareness and a faith in ourselves and our own Buddha nature. And finally, it can become unshakable faith. Sharon Salzberg has kind of rehabilitated the concept of faith in Buddhism with her wonderful book on faith that came out a couple of years ago. And she says, Faith is having the courage to step forward into the unknown. It encourages engaged and open-hearted participation in life. Faith is reaching out to others for connection instead of remaining isolated. Faith is always having a sense of possibility moment by moment. So those are my thoughts on doubt and faith and spiritual materialism and all kinds of stuff. And it's the end of the series on the hindrances. Yay! So, anyone have any questions or thoughts on any of that? As you <laughs> <laughs> Uh oh, talking too fast. I cut out a lot too. <laughs> oh, I really like to hear from some of you on how do you work with you know with uh, self doubt and have you run into dry patches in your practice? What keeps you going?
1: I think mostly just seeing the example of people who practice around me, and no. as you said, seeing often people that came in and saw how they were and realized that it's not like people suddenly burst into the flame. Yeah. But there's a difference.
0: Yeah, there is. I think so too. Right. Right.
2: Yeah?
1: Uh, for me, you had mentioned about what, um, when you're feeling bad about yourself or, or When you, the comment you made about noting how nothing's really changed you know, in, uh, between now and when you were feeling good moments or uh, the day before and I, I found that to be really true and that just trying to be aware of that mm-hmm. and trying to pop up a little bit and, and <coughs> recognize the transient yeah it's really just Yep. that there really is no objective event happening here. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's yeah, right. And it's, it's
0: just my mind. Yeah, thing. Yep. exactly. When there is some event, we're usually too busy to worry about it. You yeah. know, it's when there isn't that we can, <laughs> that we can indulge in doubting. Yeah. yeah. Did you have?
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I was interested to hear you talk a little bit about this, this concept of the Dharma overload or maybe trying to look too hard for something. And, you know, and maybe something I'm going through right now, I was curious if you had you know, anything more to say about that, perhaps some maybe warning signs or anything that you could look for. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess in particular, start thinking about things you just read while you're meditating, how those that come up, Does that would that be?
2: Well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, gee, that happens to me so often, I hate to call it a warning sign of anything, <laughs> but yeah, um, I think it's really just if you start, I mean, how much are you putting out into the future your idea of what you're going to get out of this? I think that's the main place where, where this starts to lead you astray, you know, because it, it's the proportion of the amount of time that you spend imagining how nice it will be when all of my problems are gone. Versus the amount of time that you actually spend looking at the real nature of what it feels like to be you right now. You know? And that, and it, for me, it's just a matter of what stirs that up, you know? And some kinds of reading don't stir it up, and some kinds of reading do. You know, I just have a real, my mind just loves systems and maps and, you know, Anything with you know fourteen stages or something ooh, you know I got to read that and and that and that kind of thing just makes me so stirred up about you know is this that is this that and then when i'm when i'm sitting i 'm not receptive, so the whole thing is to to be receptive because it, it's like that poem I read about what you see when you open the window, you know anything i've ever had that resembles an insight or a new way of experiencing things has come from being open and receptive and from being as far away as I can from thinking about what might happen if I were a good meditator you know so it's like that's the way in which it's really a hindrance for me yeah can, can you talk about you know there's
2: a space in
0: Yeah. This whole, I mean, there's a really strong, I, I don't, I don't feel like I've experienced this yet, but people say that there's a real, that there, you do get to a point of unshakable faith, but it's unshakable faith really in your, in your, in your fluidity. You know, it's a funny kind of unshakable faith because it sounds rigid, but it's not rigid at all. And, but aside from that, if, if if you get faith in a particular thing, or like that experience was it, especially if you're talking about the past or the future, and your, your faith is somewhere about something that happened, or something that you are sure is going to happen, you know, that kind of faith is probably setting yourself up. You know, but if, if, it's, a, if it's really not faith in anything exactly, just kind of a confidence in your ability to handle whatever life throws you, you know, that kind of faith. That kind of openness is is the kind of faith that that we can find through this practice. Does that Does that address your? Yeah, the ability to recognize the difference in that
2: kind of
0: thing. Right, right. You don't You don't have to think about that kind of fluid faith very much. I mean, you're not You're not usually so much sitting around thinking about I have this faith, you know. Or, I mean, it's just kind of a just kind of there for you. It's kind of manifest as non-worry, you know, and non, non-anxiety. non I think, I hope. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, you just said, it, but I was thinking, the ability to cope with what is and not to be, and sort of have faith when I'm, thinking I can't cope with what is and I need to make what is into something else. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. To be able to
0: have faith. Yeah, right. That's not necessary. Right, right. It's not, you know, a, a wrong kind of faith would be faith that we're going to be able to fix everything, you know, or faith that we're going to, you know, fix ourselves to be very different than we are. But it's just the kind of faith that it's okay. Mm. Yeah, I kind of like the sun
2: analogy. You talked about what you said. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah, that's kind of how I'm feeling these days, really, because I feel, you know, kind of bad a lot these days, but yet I'm really also amazed at how it's like, oh, well, you know, (laughs) okay, (laughs) it'll go away, and, you know, or it won't, but it's interesting, you know, and it's kind of. You know it's helpful to have the whole Dharma context for understanding when something comes up that it is kind of onward leading that we have to look at these things and that we go through these phases and that you know so there's a kind of faith that may not be it's a little more in the bright faith category, a little more wishful thinking faith of interpreting this as being, oh, you know I'm working through some deep thing that I need to work through, you know, I don't know, that's just a story. you know I just I just have anxiety and it comes and goes and uh, but at at the more real faith level. I'm surprised to find that I do really seem to have a habit of opening rather than pushing away. You know, or, so when something comes up that's unpleasant, really, truly these days, my, my immediate reaction is, how can I open to this? Because I've learned that that makes it better than trying to fight it and push it away. You know? And that's a vast improvement in, in basic understanding of how to get through life.
1: you're suffering oh
0: goody well no not that <laughs> not that I don't go to the doctor and say what's the matter with me help but <laughs> but, but you know i, I should sure rather be with the practice than without it through difficult phases
2: I found one of the things that helped me a lot has been um, discussion you know, having getting in What's going on yeah. today? Because that, just the talking about it, sometimes helps me see that it's um, the suffering of the thoughts, yeah,
0: And
2: you know, the believing of the thoughts. Yeah,
0: right. It's so hard because we can think that we're we can think that we're really practicing, and we just you know being blind means you can't see it, you know. So you you just can't see what the thing is that that you're just stuck on and believing, you know, and it really does take somebody else, you know, like a friend or a teacher or somebody to point out that that, too, is something you can be mindful of instead of just taking as part of the scenery. Yeah. Yeah. Could you
1: give me a a title and author's name on that poem about looking out the window so I can...
0: Yeah, the poet's... Last name is P E S S O A. P E S S O A. Fernando is his first name.
1: Title?
0: Well, I don't know. I, the poems don't have titles, just their first names, um, first lines. Yeah. I think courage, there's kind of an emotional quality to faith that, you know, courage is kind of a, it comes from this sun thing that Lynn was talking about where, you know, you've seen it and that gives you more courage, you know, to know that you can go forward. And the more, there's something to me about the more you understand the context of the whole thing and the more that you really tune into the common universality of suffering and dukkha, it kind of, you know, it's encouraging to think that you're doing this, I don't know, just that that there's a bigger picture somehow gives me courage, you know, that that you can, I don't know, there's also just plain old faith that that there really is, you know, an end of suffering and that, that, that it's not, that it's possible. You know, I believe that. So that's a kind of a bright faith. You know, from the from the teachers and people that I've been around. I, I guess I believe that. I don't know. I've just seen that awareness works. That opening up works. You know, and so it's. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that very well because. Fear is a big thing with me, and I, I could use some more courage. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking
1: that courage is to doubt, that effort is to slough and torpor. Hmm. That, hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's an analogy there. Yeah, right?
0: yeah, that's interesting. Right, right.
1: Right it's
0: the thing that lets you do that. right, it's interesting because one of the one of my teachers Joseph actually teaches that um the word for effort is actually related to the word for courage, so it's sort of like he talks about courageous effort that we need sometimes, and he talks about it more in in the context of if you don't like the idea of effort because you don't want to try too hard, think of it as courage, you know there's sort of like the courage to keep going because it, and it's you know it's just a, it's just. It doesn't have to be big courage like I'm going to take on the whole world. It's just the courage to face the next moment, you know. I just thought of a... Oh, go ahead, Scott. I was just going to say, I had. To, I ran into this quote yesterday that I was going to work into the talk, but I didn't. Where the Bobby McFerrin, that singer, you know, he said that improvisation is the courage to move from note to note. Oh. God, <laughs> I got that in. Improvisation is the courage to move from note to note. you know, I could say that I haven't had any doubt in this since the first moment I read my first armor book, and that would be true on one level, you know. I mean, it just made immediate sense to me, and I haven't looked back, and I started going to the retreats and turned my whole life around, so I'm probably still on my honeymoon, too. <laughs> so I hope it lasts, <laughs> but, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's, you know, that carries, that carries us, and, it, you know, it just becomes deeper when it's verified by our own experience.
1: It's always found practice it. You know, talk about the honeymoon period. It really is like a relationship. That in a relationship you have a honeymoon phase, and then you get to the real work of, of building a relationship and communicating. It's the same mm-hmm. thing with practice. Right. It goes through phases.
0: Right. And in my mind, there's a big difference between faith in the Dharma and some notion of any notion of what a particular thing I ought to do about it is. You know, like maybe I shouldn't go to retreats anymore, or maybe I went through two years where I didn't come here. I was just kind of fed up with the whole scene, and you know, I didn't like it here. And I don't know, that's a phase I went through. You know, and now I'm really enjoying it here. And so, it, but I didn't think that I lost faith then. I was just needing to be off by myself. So, you know, that kind of thing changes a lot. Sorry, I feel like I haven't looked over here. Did you all have any? <laughs> okay. Yeah? I can't read the breath for you. You just had a little bit
2: of moment, and I have kind of doubt about everything taking any action for
0: this model, and I really needed to hear this. Do you have this typed up anywhere? Is it on the web or anything? Well, I guess it'll be on the web if, uh, if this works. <laughs> I do, do, but it's kind of a mess in the notes, so I don't know. What I wanted to ask it, I think it's kind
2: of what you know, is I guess I'm one of those people who is confused by the array of everything. And and so, like, the first thing I ever did with meditation was through some Python tapes. And he had you, there were these things he had you say and kind of visualize, and I used to say those and visualize those. And then, I don't remember Do is go back and forth among the various things where I'm like either doing a mantra-type concentration or a breath-type concentration, or and it can change like within a sitting or day to day. Or is 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 that you said just pick one, and what, 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 you can't? You mean or, or don't? Or can't, don't. Does that mean that it will never?
0: No 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 i i mean there's no there's no rule i mean it's so different from everybody you know if it's if it's what inspires you if it's working for you, the only thing I would say is that you might pay a little bit of attention to the motivation for why you switch you know that 's really where the interesting part is and it's not saying don't switch you know I mean lots of people do you know they do concentration practice and mindfulness or and loving kindness is a whole different practice that we teach here you know and so there's all these things work together beautifully. The only thing is that if we if we switch on the basis of greed or aversion, then we're just reinforcing those patterns, you know. So there could be, you know, you can just look at it and and look at it when you're ready to look at it, you know. Things come up, you know. I mean, if it's helping you the way you're doing it, then keep doing it. There's nothing, I didn't mean, just anything I said, I didn't mean to say you have to do it that way. It's just, you know, some ideas that you might find helpful. Should we sit for one minute? (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.